You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Pru. I'm Andre Pru from underwinereview.ca. And I'm Michael Pincus of michaelpincuswinereview.com. And yesterday you learned something about needing to be careful around broken glass. Took a glass out of the dishwasher, wasn't paying any attention whatsoever, and uh, hit hit the bowl off the stove. Bowl lands on the ground. It's crystal. It's that Schottsvisel stuff, so that doesn't break. But the stem breaks because that's where it's weakest. And where does the stem go? Right along my thumb. Hmm. Seven stitches later. And, I mean, here's the thing. Anyone who knows about digits and stitches, they don't usually stitch fingers unless it's a big deal. Uh, you know what? I was surprised. I, I basically sat around for half an hour with, like, a, like, like Kleenex or, or and paper towel on me thinking, you know what? Maybe I'll stench the flow of blood. I'll be fine. Um, but it just wouldn't stop. So I'm like, you know what? I think I'm going to go and have this checked out. And I went to, uh, to the St. Catharines Hospital here. Had a great doctor, believe it or not, Doctor Riddle, who did know Voldemort, and um, so Doctor Riddle patched me up good. And at one point, he goes, "I think six will do just fine." Patched me up, and he goes, "Oh no, this uh, this one's a little deeper than I thought. I guess it's lucky seven. So seven stitches for you in my thumb. So either right. I have a big thumb or a bad cut. Whatever. Now that we've made everyone uncomfortable, we can introduce this podcast that I'm. Really excited to finally get out in the world because this is the live-to-tape recording of us sitting down with the three Speck brothers at Henry Pelham last fall. This is the very first time we have done it in front of a live studio audience. So this is the part, I guess, where we usually argue over who starts this thing. Well, I'm going to start it because I don't care. (laughs) I'd like to thank everybody for, for coming out to the very first Two Guys Talking Live. Um... For two guys talking wine, yeah. and uh, we hope to do this at least once or twice a year. Um, as you may or may not know, we do a legacy podcast with with folks in Ontario who have really started the industry and uh, or very important within the industry and its growth. And I don't think there's anybody more important as a family group. <laughs> as, a, as I'm putting that together, I'm like, well, maybe, but. As the Speck Brothers, and we are very happy to have all three of them, which I understand is a is a really big feat to have all three of you guys in one room. So, uh, thank you very much, guys, for, for showing up. So, if anyone has heard the Legacy series before, the uh, first question I always ask every everyone, especially given all the government bureaucracy, the weather, I guess basically everything to do with agriculture, uh, what the hell were you guys thinking when you decided to start a winery? <laughs> well, first of all, thank you guys so much for this opportunity, and thanks for everybody for coming out. Um, makes me feel old when you're talking about legacy, so I don't know. I don't know, but uh, what were we thinking? It was really not what we were thinking, it was what my parents were thinking. Uh, our uh, father grew up in this area, and in fact, uh, in this very room, when he was a kid, they'd come and square dance in here. And uh, they'd have their family. And you don't want to talk about legacy. <laughs> well, so, so, uh, and, and uh, our grandmother grew up right across the street in that house, that red house. So, uh, the his the the history of this land it runs deep in our family. And uh, uh, in the early '80s, one of the last remaining parcels of land uh, that had been in the family name since 1794 came up. Uh, for sale from one of our cousins, and uh, my dad and mom bought that piece of land from him, and uh, the next thing you know, we were planting a small vineyard. And when did you plant that vineyard? What was the year? Uh, 1984. So, um, do you still have any plants from the original 84 plant? In not Yes, we yeah, do. Actually, we're yeah. going to be tasting the uh, Speck Family Reserve Bacco Noir oh, and the Riesling. <laughs> The Speck family Riesling are uh, from those original plantings. So we we planted that vineyard in 84, and uh, the first uh, vintage was 1988. And uh, I I just graduated university, and and I said to my dad I'd help him out with this thing for a year. And um, 
I kind of never left. And Matt and Dan, as they were going through university, they helped out as well. And I said to them when they were graduated university, give us a year to help. And uh, here they're still here. Okay, so I guess so. we've done a really crappy job of setting this up, and we're assuming everyone knows who the specs are, but if we could go down and uh, name rank in serial number who you are and what you do for the winery. Okay, I'm, I guess I'm Paul Speck. I'm the oldest brother, and uh, kind of hide in my office under the <laughs> table. I've heard that. But uh, we, we work together, but here's... Yo, I'm Daniel, I'm the youngest, and uh, I'm involved in sales and uh, some of the new brand development as well. So, uh, Matthew Speck, I'm in the middle, obviously, and uh, I look after the, the vineyards and the, the winemaking production side of things. So I guess what we should ask, obviously you developed into your roles, so how did you pick the role that you were going to do? Was it just the last one left? Was nobody wanted to do sales and marketing? <laughs> yeah, kind so of. Guess yeah. what? You're, you're it. Or... It was a largely birth order uh, yeah. directed. But... And hiding under your desk is obviously the first job you'd want to get. When, when you're yeah. oldest, you can hide. Yeah. Well, I think when uh, when when uh, Paul came back, I mean, Matt and I, were, I was in high school, Matt was in university, so Paul kind of had all had every job to do, <laughs> along with, we had, of course, had a winemaker, but uh, pretty much a bit of everything. And then as Matt came back, it seemed to make sense. So Matt was, was a bit of a gearhead and always loved to be involved with the machinery and that sort of thing. I kind of fell into the, the viticulture side. And then, yeah, last up was sales. But I actually loved it. I hated being in the vineyard. So nothing made me happier than the day I got off a tractor and got into the Into an air-conditioned car. Exactly. An air-conditioned <laughs> 88 Black Thunderbird. It's excellent. Okay, so you said that your first uh, vintage was in 1988. What did you guys make in 1988? We made. Uh, oh, do you want? Well, I, mean, uh, I mean, we made uh, Bacco Noir and uh, Riesling and uh, Chardonnay. Chardonnay. And then we had a red, a red blend and a white blend, just sort yeah. of a mix of varieties, um, each of those. And do we, we have an ice wine from maybe? No, no, no 89, 89 was ice wine. We made a Seval Blanc white. white. Well, sure. Yeah, there's a couple of varieties that we worked with back then that we since have removed and replanted um, to, to other varieties. But yeah, we and we made later one harvest. other. We made one other red. I just can't remember. It must have been a Cabernet Merlot. So you obviously had that first vintage in, in '88. Then, at what point did you take a look? Take a look at the numbers. Take a look at how the wines are selling, and thought we can do this. We can build a successful business out of this. Mm. Well, <laughs> did we do it that it way? Was, it was more like we had to. <laughs> we kind of had to, yeah. It was more trial by fire than thinking ahead. There's a little less strategy and a more rea a little more reaction. I mean, we had to make a living out of this business. We had mortgages to pay, and it was uh, so so. It was you know all hands on deck. I think the best way to answer that question is. I think there's about eight or nine wineries in Ontario when we started, and there there was no VQA, there's no wine route, there's there wasn't a section in the LCBO where you, our wines sold, um, so it was a pretty, you know, it was kind of like tabula rasa, it was a blank slate, it's sort of a new beginning for the whole area, and um, uh, there's. Four or five other winemakers uh, that were uh, involved in starting VQA, and there's kind of this new passion for producing s small amounts of really high quality, mostly vinifera focused wines. And I don't think at the time any of us really knew um, what the next year looked like. It was more, we just got to do this thing, and it was very collaborative at the time. Uh, at one point, uh, I did some math on it, and I figured if we sold a certain amount of wine, um, uh, we would start to make a go of it, and, and that was fairly early on, so to sort of loosely answer your question, somewhere around 1990, I had a couple years of experience um, uh, g gave me an ability to sort of start to map out what, what made sense. Hmm. But it was pretty scary for the first five or six years, or maybe eight years. <laughs> maybe we should start with one of these wines, because uh, everybody's looking a little thirsty, and I know I'm looking at them thinking we should, we should talk sure. about one. I think so, we should start with the Riesling, right? Well, there's number one here says a Pinot Noir. Is there a, is there a reason to the Matt's format? Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, 
Pinot Noir is kind of like white wine and drag, right? Okay. So, <laughs> All right, so um, and it uh, can I sometimes guess. be a little more delicate than a, a, a Chardonnay. Um, you could debate it in this context. Well, Sixteen Chardonnay is pretty big, so kind of feel that. Often you start we start with Pinot and then move in through the whites. Um, yeah. So we can we can talk a little bit about the wine. So it's the 2012 Spec Family Reserve Pinot Noir. Uh, what makes it a Spec Family Reserve? I guess I can't ask that question again because they're all Spec Family Reserves. Wines, as I as I see them in front of me, we can get it over with. Yeah. So what uh, what makes it a spec family reserve? First of all, um, yes. Well, spec family. It's a, I guess a few things. One, the the grapes <laughs> for these wines are all sourced from our state, and uh, all generally from the old most the oldest plantings and original plantings. Um, older vines, not they don't necessarily have to come from the oldest blocks, but we're selecting the best fruits of the earth, best fruit from our our vineyards, and that still typically does come from those original plantings. And uh, then on top of that, I mean, they're, they're getting extra care. Like in the head time, we're doing things in the vineyards to reduce crop, and the vines get some extra care, uh, whatever that may be, in a given year, whether it's a leaf removal, and uh, there's extra passes going on through the vineyard to look after some of the, all the little details that, um, that you can do to a vine you know, in a growing season. Uh, a lot of it about um, limiting crop loads. So the older vines t tend to naturally start to produce a smaller crop, more concentrated wine anyways on their own, which is so nice to work with them. But um, we'll still go through and do some tweaking of the crop, removal, removing bunches that are things that uh, we don't think are going to ripen as well. Um, so we do that type of crop removal. And, uh, and then, of course, there's barrel aging. All these would be barrel aged um, to some degree. Uh, more or less, fraction. Uh, except for the Riesling, which is all done in stainless. Um, and then ultimately, we, we, we pick and choose the years as well. We declassify. So these wines are not necessarily made every year. So you know, we'll, uh, it's got to be a year that's an exceptional vintage or vintage where we can feel the, that the weather, the vintage allows us to, for this, each varietal to um, hit that highest level. And so all the vintages we're looking at here, we're looking at, well, we're looking at two great vintages. Year 2012 and 2016, and so those are exceptional vintages when we were able to make our top top level wines, um, and uh, so then we'll make then we'll bottle the spec family. So we'll, we'll make them every year. We don't always bottle them unless we feel they hit that level. So we have a we have a vineyard dude, we have a sales dude, mm -hmm. we have a dude who's hiding out under his desk. Yeah, and and, and so now there's got to be a fourth guy involved here, uh, uh, the winemaker. So, who's your first winemaker, and how does how do they get in there? I shouldn't just go he, although we know it's a he. But how does <laughs> how does he get involved? And uh, our first, I mean, our first were Ron Giesbrecht was our winemaker for for many years, and then uh, as of um, for twenty three uh, years. Uh, uh, 23 Ron years? Is our winemaker. Yeah. So now it's Sandrine uh, F is our current winemaker. She worked with Ron for about 15 or 16 years as the assistant winemaker, and then um, Ron has since moved on to Niagara College. So how do, you get, how do you get Ron Sandrine. involved, and, and what year does he come on board? He came in 89. We had a couple of wine. Uh, we were looking for a full-time winemaker at the time, and there wasn't a lot of people here um, available, especially in the premium winemaking. And... Um, I was going to a number of the, the, there used to be a, a wine and viticulturalist club, I can't remember what it was called, but the winemakers and grape growers would get together in like the Holiday Inn, sort of once a quarter, and just trade information amongst each other. It was very small, and then there'd always be a tasting, and uh, sort of in 80, 88, 89-ish, um, I was going and introducing myself and getting to know the people involved in the business. And uh, Ron actually worked for Bright's at the time. And um, Bright's, you know, didn't have a great reputation uh, for making great quality wine. And he was, uh, he was, a, a, it was one of the big wineries that was left. It's now, was eventually merged into what became Vincor, what became Constellation, and now it's called Artera. Uh, but he was working for um, Bright's and he was an assistant uh, winemaker there, you know, doing the blends and doing whatever the big stuff was, but they allowed him to make a small amount of um, really amazing wines. And every time I'd go to these tastings, 
I always felt his wines were the best. And I guess, I, I, for me, I knew about Bright's. I know they didn't have a great reputation, but I was so young at the time that it didn't, it, I wasn't stigmatized or traumatized by the whole idea. And um, there's a couple of early competitions. I remember it vividly where Ron's Wines won the competition and everybody was aghast that it was from Bright's. <laughs> and I thought, well, that tells me all I need to know. So we offered, I said, you know, well, I have an opportunity here where you could you could um, make that type of wine all the time, full time, as opposed to doing it on your lunch break. And um, he jumped at it, and uh, he jumped on board, and and he was, uh, I think, one of the the great, uh, and will be remembered as one of the great early winemakers of uh, sort of the 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 modern quality wine industry. He was great. Now, for the three of you, though, I know you said that the family's thrown you into this, and you sought out this winemaker to come and, and work for you, but how did you, right out of university, know what good wine tasted like? Because I know even for myself, I had a general idea, and looking back, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Well, we studied, all three of us studied classical Western philosophy, so we were bullshitting it most of the time for the first couple of years. I mean, we were completely winging it. And uh, like I said with Ron, I, I wasn't stigmatized by brights. I mean, I knew about it. I tasted the wines. I thought these taste good to me. You got a gold medal. He beat all these other guys out. You're in. Let's go. I can tell you something. You're in good company because I heard an interview with the band U2. Yeah. They say the same thing. They were not musicians. They just kind of, they were just bullshitting the whole time. And they became one of the biggest bands in the world. And it's, well, you're in good company. It was highly that. entrepreneurial, yeah. I like to say. I know, I know you, uh, Matt, uh, have, I don't know how long we have you for because I know you're doing mm -hmm. some... Uh, some harvesting. We're, yeah, at some point I get back to the crush pad. So uh, I'd like to jump way, way, way ahead sure. on this, just in case we lose you and we don't get a chance mm -hmm. to ask you this. How is the 2017 vintage looking now? And then right. if you can step back to, if you remember what our, you know, August was like, were you worried between August and now? Right. Yeah. Yeah, so 17 is turning out to be an amazing surprise in the sense that, um, <coughs> Yeah, I mean, prior to August, so in the spring, we had, I mean, if you go back, we had a great, we had a very mild winter, which is a good thing. So the vines came out of the winter, uh, they, they're very, in, you know, very healthy. Uh, and then we had a nice growing season in 16. So the vines were in good shape coming into the spring, uh, which is, which is key. They're healthy, they're strong. We had a lot of, we had a lot of rain in that early spring through early summer period. So, um... That doesn't impact fruit quality nece directly necessarily, but it meant the vines had a lot of growth. There were lots of uh, canopy and weed growth, and it was a, maybe a difficult, difficult spring summer to manage the vines, but, but they're healthy. Um, also had a, have a big crop on them. And uh, that mid-August to now, really mid-August to early October is the critical period for flavor development. And um, the season completely flipped into like a whole different almost like we were in the Mediterranean all of a sudden. We went from the monsoons to the Mediterranean <laughs> by mid... And if it stopped raining mid-August, it did exactly... If you could write a textbook of exactly what you would want to have happen in a season, that's basically what happened. It stopped raining, got warm, very warm. And we went from mid-August to now, we've had one rain event. Um, in the last uh, many weeks, that is. Seems like a blur now, but... Uh, so, so the vines have they had this great. They've had a, they have a big canopy, lots of leaves, which they need to produce the flavors and uh, a good a good sized crop. And then we've gotten all the heat we've needed to ripen it. So, so we're getting one of these rare years where we've got a good sized crop, like a very good sized crop, healthy, and uh, we're getting great ripeness, great ripeness. So the wines are are fantastic so far across the board, whites and reds. We could move on to the next wine. Oh yeah. <laughs> Actually, we just picked the it's grapes today. for this today. The, today we were handpicking um, for our Speck Family Reserve Chardonnay. So, it's, uh, um, so these these grapes again, they're 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 handpicked uh, Chardonnay grapes. But they're one thing that's unique with both this and the Riesling. They're they're put into the press as whole clusters. We don't do any destemming or anything. So the grapes just are picked in the field by hand. They're they're sorted and selected. You know, the nicer bunches in the field. And they go right into the press where they're squeezed uh, holes without any... We want them to go into the press as intact as possible. 
and then we do a very, very gentle squeezing and uh, really only using about probably 70% of the juice is, is used. The harder pressings are, are disposed, and so it's just that um, it's not free run because they go in intact, but those lighter pressings juice. Well, well you couldn't hear it down there, but uh, Andre put his nose in that, and I, I could hear you go, hmm. <laughs> so, so Michael, why don't you tell us what you really think of Chardonnay? Uh, I don't know. If you, you don't like Chardonnay. That's I'm not right. a fan of Chardonnay. Although my wife gave me some some real, uh, she gave me some shit this morning because I put a Chardonnay in the fridge, and I said, you know, we're going for dinner and we'll we'll have this tonight at some. She goes, How come you always have a glass of Chardonnay when I have a glass of Chardonnay? I go, Because the Chardonnay <laughs> we have in the house is good Chardonnay. So that's, that's what it I thought to. you were going to somebody's house to, for dinner and you're just giving them the Chardonnay. And you're well, I drink. usually do. You're going to drink whatever white, hopefully, that's not Chardonnay from your guests. Well, if it's good Chardonnay, I, I, I'm all for it. I, but I've tasted a lot of bad Chardonnay in my day. And I yeah. think we all have tasted a lot of bad Chardonnay. And I, I, I don't think it's a surprise that there is that ABC movement about, about Chardonnay because there is a lot of terrible Chardonnay out there. there is. On the other hand, there is some very good Chardonnay, and I think if you learn what you like in Chardonnay, that's what you gravitate towards, and you'll discount all the rest. Are you, well, are, are you ready to get off your soapbox? Or? I can no, stand no, up if you like. This is what happens when, I, when a grape variety becomes internationally popular and it gets planted in all the places where maybe it shouldn't be, and, and, it, and it can go, these things can go too far, and I think there's this, this movement back towards cooler climate Chardonnay, um, I mean, Niagara, as you know, I mean, it's evidenced by I4C, the International Cool Climate Chardonnay Celebration, happens every year. Uh, we bring out really good international and, of course, uh, uh, Ontario and, and BC examples of like what Chardonnay can be when it's at, I think, that highest level. It's got the acidity and it's got the roundness and depth of character to it, but isn't just a, a neutral, innocuous, throwaway wine, which there's a place for wines like that, but just. You lose when you lose varietal character, and the, the greatest expression of those wines are just much less interesting. I mean. Now that we've we've covered that, I guess we should go back to 1990. Yes, I think that. kind of where we stopped uh, before we had to make sure that Matt got his piece. Okay. okay. <laughs> so in 19, so you, you, you now have a winemaker in place. Yes. You now you know have. Yourself and yeah. when does when does Daniel come on board? Is well, Matt came. Matt, Matt, okay, sorry, Matt, Matt came on in ninety two. Ninety two. And University, Dan yeah. came on in ninety six. Full time. I mean, they were here during the summers, of course, but full time ninety two. Right. And yeah. Then yeah. Ninety six. Yeah. Okay. So we have quite a quite yeah. a spread. Yeah, it's, spread. Just, it's just you and. I was running run. solo for a few years. Okay. Yeah. So, so you realize that you know you've got a you've got a good winemaker under your belt. Yeah. You now got you know a vineyard. What did you start with? Like how much how much land is planted in 1990? I think we had 65 acres. 55, yeah, 55 really. 55. That was actually yeah. planted. So 55. I think we owned 65, but we had 55 acres planted. So you have that all planted. And, and how much do you have today planted in, in under your control? 275. Yeah, about 250 well. producing. 275. And that's all. That's all estate fruit. Correct. Yeah. All in contiguous here, so we've been kind of quietly grabbing pieces as they came up. So, yeah, we've uh, and we have another twenty acres to plant, and and then we're full currently. But it's all contiguous, which is awesome because we really know this area well, and um, it's all in the Short Hills Bench, which is our Appalachian. Okay, so you're, you're, you got fifty-five acres. You got your winemaker. So you go, okay, now we're going to do this. So you start yeah. making, um, I guess you had six wines going. Basically, yeah, basically six wines. Okay, and then do you win awards early on? Do you win a lot of uh, uh, people's, uh, you win acclaim from, from writers at that time? Andre and I aren't writing, so you can't really say we said anything. I, I would <laughs> say that our, our first, um, when we, before Ron came, I thought the wine, I think the wines were okay, and we did okay. Uh, I think we did probably a lot better than, uh, or as well as most small Niagara wineries at the time. There wasn't many, uh, but I think when Ron's wines came on board, and we, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about, you know, what we wanted to see together with these wines. Um, we we did really well, but we we went we we won a number of awards. 
I remember being at a restaurant. Um, I think it was Nika, right, where we were pour, pouring the uh, Chardonnay just before it was bottled, and um, it was a restaurant with Michael Statlander and Jamie Kennedy. It was one of the early. It's in the '80s, some point, because it was the '88 we were pouring, and. Um, uh, we poured the Chardonnay. I didn't really know much about it, but we had incredible acclaim. As soon as we, we had all these uh, restaurateurs, Scaramouche, Jamie Kenny, they said, as soon as you get that in the bottle, um, we'll buy it. Sure enough, they did. So that was probably one of our first sort of big wins. And that gave me a lot of confidence that, that, that those guys at the time were, and still are, but I mean at the time, they were leading the charge terms of uh, cuisine in Toronto and I remember uh, it was we, we labeled those wines before VQA existed so it didn't have VQA on the label and I remember taking my then girlfriend now wife to Scaramouche for dinner and it cost like a hundred dollars I remember calling my friends uh, from un college university going you're not going to believe this I spent a hundred dollars on dinner I can't afford this but they're serving our wine what can I do now and that'd be like four hundred. Now it'd be four hundred or five hundred, <laughs> and I'd be like, "Hey, that's a good deal." Ish. <laughs> but uh, but the reason I really went there not only to show uh, support to the restaurant that bought our wine, uh, Scaramouche, a good excuse to go. But but we had to every wine that um, didn't have VQA printed on the label, we created these stickers, and we had to put the stickers on the bottle. So I kind of sheepishly went in there and said to. Keith Froggett yeah, yeah. was there. That's exactly Super who. Guy. And uh, I said, "Geez, can we? Do you mind if I go into your uh, where you store your wine? I've got to late re-sticker all the wines." And they looked at me; <laughs> it was crazy. And said, "Go ahead, kid." So I stickered all the wines and then went and had dinner. I thought when, when you said you, you were at a, a dinner and it was a hundred bucks, I thought you were going to phone your friends and ask for a loan. Yeah, yeah. basically. <laughs> basically, <laughs> some, some money something like that. <laughs> so. Okay, so when we interviewed Len Petacetti about uh, Cave Spring, he called his winery the house that Riesling built. What would you say is what built Henry of Pelham? Well, I would say... Uh, for sure, it's back on the war. The king of all grapes tastes great and good for you. And let's go. Absolutely. Michael, care, care to respond? I, I, well, I, okay. I am not a fan of Baco. So now, see, so you're just picking on me. Right? I'm, not, I'm not a fan of Chardonnay, and then you throw a Baco at me. So, uh, so I'm not. I'm not a fan of Baco Noir. I, I think we should get away from Baco. That said, and I have said on the podcast on many occasions that if there is a Baco to be drunk, it is from Henry Pelham because they treat it properly. So, so the question you, is, why is Henry Pelham Baco different from anybody else making Baco? And I say that with, with confidence of that because years ago I did a Baco challenge and then years after that, and I think believe yeah, Daniel Sagan, uh, we did a five-year retrospect on the Bacos that were left over from that Baco tasting. And the Henry and Pelham Baco stood up while a lot of the other ones fell flat on their face. So but, you were there, so you yeah. witnessed that oh, yeah. not all Baco is, is the same. So right. what makes it... Well, I mean, and the, the biggest thing with taming is taming Baco in the vineyard. It needs to be tamed in the winery as well. Baco's kind of wild. I would say, like, if uh, Pinot Noir is a ballerina... And Baco Noir is a WWF wrestler. <laughs> <laughs> like it's not a, it's a, it's a rustic grape. It's rustic. It needs to be tamed. It, it, um, I was talking about the, the canopy growth we had on all the vines this year. Baco always has this. Uh, it wants to grow. It's a, it's a vigorous vine. It grows big leaves, lots of them. Big canopy. It will, it will overproduce fruit as well. It kind of wants to grow a big vine. It needs to be tamed and and uh, brought under control so that. You want, you want the leaves, you need the canopy to ripen the fruit, but you, you can't have all those leaves shading the fruit either. If you, if you allow the vine to just sort of go on its, its way without... It takes real effort. It takes more effort to manage a backhoe canopy than it does any, virtually any of the other varieties we grow. Um, so if you can tame that canopy and harness it and get the leaves in the position where you... the shape that you want and get the fruit exposed and control the crop so it doesn't overproduce... Um, being on the right site helps you. Backhoe on vigor, too vigorous a soil is just hopeless. There's just no taming it. 
Uh, so we're fortunate. Our soils are pretty devigorating. We're on heavy clay soils here. They're, they're not overly vigorous, so the vines naturally stay smaller. So that, that's a big plus for backhoe, because really, without being on the right soil, you really don't have a shot at all at taming it. So where some varieties are, are adaptable, like Chardonnay, for instance, will adapt to almost any soil. Backhoe is just not that way. Unless it's on a devigorating, heavier soils um, with good drainage, it just you're, 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 you're done before you begin. Um, so if you can tame that vine and, and get it under control and then get the crop and the balance right, then you tame some of that, that rusticness. Uh, you can keep the good rustic qualities that I think it has that, um, that make it interesting, but, but uh, um, needs to be tamed. I rode in on my Harley today. I'm going to get a, 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 a license plate for it that says Backo. Okay. So I can <laughs> cruise around promoting it. But I, I think the thing about backhoes and, and why, why do we uh, love backhoes so much is because our customers love it so much. When we first made it, we actually called it a late harvest backhoe because we let it sit out there very, for a very long time, which is also something we do. Yeah, the longer of, hang time is very important. Yeah. yeah, now it has very thin skins on it, so it tends to, to break down. So it makes it tricky, but um, we do that just to get maximum ripeness and maximum concentration. But in, uh, we made a backhoe in 1988. I remember being at the Toronto Wine and Cheese Show in 1989, pouring this backhoe in a war. They had one of the first Ontario wine competitions uh, ever, and uh, it won a silver. And uh, I was going up to collect the silver medal, which I was delighted about. And uh, one of the judges, who I cannot tell you who it is, be, but he pulled me aside and said, Paul, it actually won a gold, but we were so shocked that, a, that back on a war won a, a gold, we felt we better detune it to a silver. And I went, <laughs> so I thought, okay, so this is what we're in for. So we, uh, I went back to the booth, and back at that time, the Toronto Wine Cheese Show was, uh, depending on how you score cheese shows, a lot of fun <laughs> or a total nightmare. <laughs> but, but, oh, so, that little pause. The idea of so, even scoring so, cheese shows. So, so back, it was, at the, it was at the International Center in uh, Mississauga, and literally we just had a table like this, and everybody else pretty much had a table like this. That was back in the days where you were you could smoke while you were there, you know. So I had a cigarette in your mouth, pouring somebody wine. He had a cigarette in his mouth, saying, "Oh, this is awesome." And uh, people were doing less tasting and more drinking. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, the first wine we ran out of was back on a war. And subsequently, so I thought, well, we got to make more of this. And every year we kept making more of it, and every year we couldn't keep it in stock. So. We just followed what people liked, and uh, uh, back in 1991, I remember I finally got it. 91 was an awesome year. It was a year like 2016, actually, and one of the early years sort of in the modern wine industry where we had some experience with the grapes, and we really knew we had something. And the 91 Baco just was big... <coughs> richer want red that people weren't expecting from Niagara. There wasn't a lot of red vinifera in the ground at the time. And there's a lot of, you know, thinner, weedy red viniferas. And uh, John Tate's here from uh, Vintages. 91, when this got, the vintage 91, so it must have been 92 or 3 when it actually came out. It's the first wine in Vintages that they actually, from Ontario, that they had to limit people to six bottles Per person, because they were literally coming in, and they wanted, and they had they had lists uh, to to sell it to, and you know that was one thing for an imported wine, but it never had happened before for a Niagara wine. So wow. I knew we had something, and we just kept going. And uh, uh, it's uh, right across Canada, every market we're in, right around the world, everywhere we go is mm -hmm. still our number one wine. In fact, uh, Wednesday. I met with a, a new distributor in the U.S. who's going to do 10 or 12 states in the U.S. And I was pouring him wines, and he's extremely wine literate. And uh, I did not comment on Baco. I just said, here's something that we're known for. And we're going through Pinot and Cabernet and Riesling and Chardonnay. And 
uh, all levels because he's trying to figure out what to bring in. At the end of the tasting, I said, well, what do you think? What's the wine that's most interesting to you? And, and he said, back on a war. And I sort of felt like I knew you'd say that. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's always the one. Here's what I, I, I think you've done with that noir, and, and you're going to have to take this as a compliment, and I'll get to where I want to do it. Is you've turned back on noir into, into Kleenex. And, <laughs> and what, what I mean by that is when you talk to people um, and you say, and, they, and you go, you know, what wines from Ontario do you like? Everybody goes, oh, I love Bacco. I love Bacco Noir. And then you go, okay, so who's Bacco Noir do you like? Do you, do you, oh, Henry Pelham. Can you name another Bacco Noir? Yeah. And nobody can name anybody else who makes a good Bacco Noir that they've yeah. tried, but they love Bacco Noir. When I hand you a tissue, I say, here's a Kleenex. Yeah. When I hand you a Bacco, everybody's like, oh, it's Henry Pelham. And that's what you've, you've really right. done. You yeah. are synonymous with, with Bacco Noir, and that's, that's, you know, hats off to you guys for oh, doing you. that and for making a good wine from it. Your old wines, by the way, is, is like... Bees, knees, cat's ass, all that kind of stuff. That old wine stuff that you make is really, you know, that one I really like. You know, I, I had a feeling that when I asked the question about the house that, that Henry of Pelham built, though, that, that Baco was going to be the answer. You knew exactly what you were <laughs> <laughs> trying to get me going on Baco right away. I and I did. Uh, but the thing that I find interesting about how the wineries run in it, it sort of baffles me um, just how. You've got the entire market covered from the snobbiest of snobs to the newbiest of noobs. Uh, I mean, if someone asked me about what to drink from Henry Pelham, I would say almost immediately Cuvée Catherine. Yeah, I'd like to yeah, talk about another one. Yeah. I mean, you've got a great, obviously, some great cash flow. You've got some wines in Scaramouche. So let's make something that's very expensive, takes a lot of space, and do that. Why, why did you decide to get into, into that? And when? When did you start yeah. making sparkling? Well, I mean, experimentally in, in the early 90s. 92. Right? 92. I mean, that was a bit of a flop, and so we had a lot of um, you know, sparkling with orange juice for a few years to get rid of the palate of uh, swill that got made there. But our winemaker at the time, Ron, did something which was quite interesting, and you know, he did a bunch of experimental batches of sparkling with pretty much every grape variety under the sun, grown in Niagara, but also, you know, the core variety, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, a bit of Meunier and whatnot, even tobacco sparkling, if I remember there's some samples of. Mm -hmm. But he, uh, um, and then from different terroirs within the area. And, and if you think about sparkling, I mean, to make sparkling wine, uh, you have to pick the fruit early, you have to press fraction it to get the quality that you want, and then there's, you know, you got to ferment the batches, and it gets re-fermented in bottles. So it, it's quite a process to just make this wine here, which we make in a commercial scale. Like, this is the wine we sell. But he did that with, what was it, 30 or so, 40? He did a, a crazy of number of batches, each one an individual parcel made from a few kilos of grapes. Like, you can imagine, I mean, he, in one, that, he just right there made like 30, 40 wines. It was an, but it was a great learning because then you had to age them and all this but the great learning so very quickly we or very early on had a sense of you know what can be done here what are the possibilities what are the classical opportunities which is where we finally went with chardonnay and pinot but what are the other interesting things we could do and we still have you know you know the possibility of those things and um and where's the best fruit come from or what are, or for the cuvee what's going to make the most sense so that was uh, that was in the that would have been in the in the mid 90s, 90s. Yeah. and then first vintage was 99 yeah. which came out in 02 right yeah 2002 of just cuvee and i think the the main one of the main reasons we we were interested in sparkling wines because pinot noir and chardonnay uh, are made to grow in niagara they grow amazingly well they're very consistent and uh you know, for sparkling wine, you, you pick them slightly early. So we felt that that wouldn't be a problem doing every year. So that's why we tackled, tackled sparkling wine. We, we, we still do it traditionally. We, we still only use uh, Chardonnay Pinot Noir. So Riesling, obviously, one of those grapes for Niagara that everybody knows. Um, it's, yeah, I, 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 think it's the, the, I think it's the grape that built Ontario in people's head and what a lot of people used to think of Ontario for, I would, Riesling? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it's as popular these days, that's my opinion. Uh, 
Well, that's a good question. Ontario, I mean, internationally, uh, Riesling is not as well known a variety as uh, sure Chardonnay. It's an enthusiast one. Right? It's an enthusiast. I mean, I, I guess I, I view the way of saying Chardonnay is a variety that's super that's so adaptable to, to being able to be grown in, in almost, almost virtually any climate soil you can think of. Riesling is not that way. Riesling is very maybe more like Pinot Noir in the sense that it's very. There's very few places that can grow Riesling well. Actually, you need. Um, it's uh, it, it's like a Goldilocks scenario. It likes some heat, not too much heat, some moisture, not too much. It really is very narrow. So when you look, you know, globally around where wine wine's grown globally in so many different places, there's very few of them that can grow Riesling at all, and to grow it well is even even less places. So it needs needs that right mix of, of sunshine. It needs some sunshine and, and warmth, but it, it generally thrives in a cooler climate ultimately. And um, and so, so we are lucky. I mean, Riesling grows very well in Niagara. It's, we're very well suited to Riesling. One of the most few places in the world that can grow it well, maintain the acidity and freshness that the grape is really, you know, that's, that's what's best about Riesling, I think. Um, but get concentration. And, and then it's a very, it can be a very nuanced wine. What's interesting with Riesling is the nuanced complexity. There's very, it's the least interventionist wine of all the wines we make in terms of how you grow the grapes to how the wine is to what we do in the winery with it we don't do that much actually it really speaks to the, the where it's grown more than anything it's um i like to say we do a lot but we don't like the, the vines are managed obviously but nothing special goes on really with riesling in the vineyard it just and uh and then in the winery is the same we bring the fruit in we press it it's fermented in a stainless tank there's no oak there's no it's just very non-interventionist um just one nice clean juice and I ferment it cool, and you have the finished wine. That's it. That's recently <laughs> settle it, and you have, you have it's done. So it really, it tastes like the, there's no wine to probably taste more like the place it's grown. You know, the way to put it than um, than recently, I think. So we have uh, we have college and university educated gentlemen in front of us. You are loosely, the, loosely, yeah. <laughs> we kind of just touched home plate at the tip yeah. on the way through. <laughs> we all slid through. So we understand why why Paul gets involved in wine. He's the eldest son. That seems to be the way to go. So, Matt, you took what in university? Just so that I'm uh, same philosophy. Philosophy. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> this, this does explain a little bit. Maybe the question is not something I should get into. But so you finish university. And you said, hey, come on, you know, work for us for a year. Give us a year, is mm-hmm. what, uh, what Paul said. So what makes you, one, go, yeah, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give them the year. And two, what makes you stay? Yeah, so I mean, initially, it, it's, it's a little more, because even by the time, so by the time 92 rolls around, I finished university. Was, or I mean, at that point, we're, we're already very invested in this project, because we've been out here since 84. Uh, it's like these, like these vines, or this Riesling vineyard, are trying. We planted that as kids in '84 with shovels. Like so, it was. Um, so it's not like it was. We were coming back to something. We were already. I was already very, as we all were, very invested in this <coughs> project with our parents. We were just we were kids doing it with our parents. So the family project, enterprise. Um, so it was, it was definitely. Uh, it wasn't like it was. It was. Um, I was like being forced to come back. I wanted to come back to be a part of the project. I did have other ideas, maybe being an engineer, going on to more schooling. So I had well, maybe like this was going to be my resting place. But um, <laughs> without another degree, only having a philosophy degree, you're relatively um, unemployable <laughs> too. So <laughs> it's not a bad first start. <laughs> At least have a job. But I know we were I was definitely already invested in it, and we were invested. In it. You know, we already spent a number of years as a family working here and you know working on this, this project, uh, and. Um, but yeah, then coming back, being immersed in it, and uh, then there was just no looking back, really. But I, at the end of the day, I enjoy it. I really enjoy what I do. Like I, I love being a part of the, working with my brothers and working with the family, and you know what I do for a living. There's nothing else I'd rather do. So, so ultimately, as hard as it is, hard work. It's fine, whatever. But it's exciting, and we, ultimately, I really like it. So it wasn't it wasn't a hard choice. And then I guess the same thing to you, Daniel. Now we're four years on, mm-hmm. 1996. You see what these two are going through, mm-hmm. and they say, hey, oh, first of all, what did you do in university? I studied philosophy. Philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
see what these two are now going through, and um, and you know, once bitten, twice shy. Now they judge it twice bitten. Now they say, give us a year, and what makes you go? Yeah, I'll give them the year, and then what makes you ultimately stay? And you can't say ditto. Yeah, no, I, I dreaded it to be honest with you. I, the idea of coming back and spending the rest of my life in a vineyard was—I mean, I love—I love the vineyards. I was running my dogs in them today. My wife and I—it was beautiful. But that's about as close as I like to get to them. I, <laughs> no, I love—I love where we live and I love what we do for sure. But um, at that time, for me, it was like coming back to—I used to call it camp farm, you know, like a work camp. And uh, um, I can remember that when I finished school, Paul matted come down, picked up all my stuff, my mom, and then I was driving back, we were all down in Annapolis, and I was driving back on my own in my car, and I remember, I, I, it, was, it, was, it was about an eight hour drive, and I remember getting in the car, but somewhere around upstate New York, and I'm like, I, I pulled out, I had a, uh, an Arturo Fuente Maduro, a Chateau cigar, so that long, beautiful cigar, and I lit it up, and I, I was like, by the time I finish smoking this, I will have enjoyed the last freedom of my life. <laughs> <laughs> I drove slowly <laughs> to the border. Like, okay, here we go. And, uh, you know, got on the, on the farm in the, again for, you know, the umpteenth year, probably 14th year of working in the vineyards. And uh, one of our salespeople, our only salesperson, really, Tracy, uh, uh, got poached by a, by a much larger company. And someone had to go out and uh, sell, and, and Matt and Paul were both selling wine, and you know Matt was farming at the same time, and Paul was dealing with you know the business side of things, and da 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 da. And I was in the vineyards, and then sort of got an education on selling from Tracy, who's the best teacher, I have to say, and from Matt actually too. And I, you know, I, I loved the the, uh, the 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 being involved in the restaurant scene, calling on those liquor stores, dealing with the people, and the uh, and the, this industry was was so social at that time too it still is I mean, there's, I mean last night I was at dinner with a bunch of winemakers and, and grape growers it was really fun like we're people are really passionate about this product that we make and being involved in you know the decisions of you know quality like we meet and taste wines together and we put the blends together like we're still we're all actively involved in winemaking at, at that level uh, it was just amazing and, and, and the creative side of it and it just it became a, you know, an addiction in and of itself but I will say the one there was another I was telling someone this story the other night actually a winemaker from Languedoc, we were talking about, uh, he was he grew up in wine and why, why he stayed in it and why I stayed in it. There was, I didn't know much about wine at the time. You know, I basically drank beer in college and a little bit here and there with wine. But I was at my mom's house in 96, I guess it was right after I'd started on the road selling. And she had a great cellar full of wine and I would help, you know, help her to drink it. That's and, nice. and, she, and she would also cook these great meals. And I was in the city, you know, being the good son, visiting mom in Toronto. And we reached into the cellar. I didn't know SFA about wine. So we, we pulled out a bottle of uh, Ridge Geyserville in 86. So I was 10 years old. Uh, um, and I, you know, twisted her arm to open this bottle and drink it. And it, it was like that scene in Ratatouille when the, the rat, you know, he gets shot by, hit by lightning and he's eating cheese and mushrooms and all of a sudden he, he gets flavor and why, why he should become a chef. And I was like, oh my God, this is why wine is so amazing and why people totally get wine who get wine. And then I was like, okay, I've got to, I, I, this, is, this is career has chosen me and it's, I, there's no looking back. I just fell in love with it. Like, there's those two things. It's a good wine to uh, to get into things with too. I, I was lucky, yeah. My mom, my mom used to read David Lawson's columns in the uh, Globe, I guess, and yeah, just buy whatever he recommended. Actually, we had some really interesting wines from there. Even you know, right out of the general list, kind of mainstream stuff with age, that was really interesting. Like, yeah, it was a treat. Now, we thought about you all are involved in the wine, so I want to know the good and bad about working with your brothers. Without starting a fight in any way, shape, or form here. But, you know, maybe we go down the road, list one good thing about working with your brothers, and one negative thing about working with family. I used to work with family, so I, there's lots of negatives. Well, I mean, I think the good thing is uh, we, because we've always worked on the, the vineyards right here, we, we kind of grew up working together. Um, we're we know how to work together because when you grow up working together, you, it, it's a, I think that's mostly a, partially or mostly a learn, it's like learning how to play well together. 
except in our case we weren't playing most of the time we were working so so we get along very very well we laugh at the same jokes we could be at a party and one of us will say a joke and three guys are laughing and nobody else is laughing. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I'm like, okay, that's why we work so well together. Uh, we, uh, uh, we, you know, we, we have a, uh, we're so invested in, the, in this business for so many years. We're very proud of it. We're proud of, you know, the industry too. I, I think, you know, it really is a family business as most uh, wineries and one of the great things about the wine business around the world is it's still uh, run by a lot of families. There's a lot of corporations involved too, but uh, there's still a lot of families and it's a small community. So uh, I enjoy working with Matt and Dan and, and we, we tend to agree most of the time. I mean, I, it's hard for me to find a negative. Um, I, you know, it's, I, it honestly is, is, is hard for me to find a negative because we do get along well. I, you know, You're just like, saying that because the microphone's on. <laughs> no, no, I'm on. I'm on. Right. I'm trying to. Right. Uh, let so, me think so about so it. Cause me, I'm trying to come up with have something. a negative of working with families? Uh, the wedgies. Three <laughs> <laughs> brothers. No, I don't think so. I think, I think it was harder maybe in the beginning in some ways because. We were all young and, and under a lot of pressure and trying to figure it out. And, and also different ages uh, when it matters, matters more when you're younger than when you're older. Um, but I, I kind of feel like that same way as Paul. I mean, there's, there's a combination of, you know, history. Uh, without history, you, don't, you can't build a nation, right? And it, it's like that shared experience is, is a big part of it. But also the school, and not to get all Elton John about it, but the school we went to uh, uh, was very much a seminar format, and it sort of taught you how to be hard on the problems and not the people. And I think having all three of us having gone there probably took some of that back and, and have applied that in our in our working lives together as well as the rest of our lives. And I think that was a, a good thing. So we have a good way of not getting into the troubled areas because we we know we're working on the same problem, right? It's, it's Problems are the problems. You got to fix them. So. See, Matt, Matt looks like he's about to, he's about to say something. Yeah. But, now but now he's like, well, okay, you guys are actually doing it. Oh, yeah, I guess I won't jump. No, there's one thing I'd say. You know, we do. I mean, you know, I agree in all in um, every everything that uh, Paul and Dan said. I mean, it's great working together. It's uh, there's the, the, the positives are, are amazing. They're stronger. It's great to just hang out. We get along. We get along well. There's so hang out together. We have lunch <laughs> like three times a week. I think operation. One thing I know we have to be aware of and we're conscious mm -hmm. of is because the three of us I think very alike. And often, if we're in a meeting where it's, just, where it's the three of us, maybe in a, with uh, someone from winemaking or sales or other part other employees, and I think we have to be mindful that we don't just because we have our own can have our own language, like finishing each other's sentences or get on a topic and and to the to the exclusion of other ideas or other people. And so that's something we have to be very aware of I think just because we because we're talking about work and we have this long shared experience in the history of building this the business together and it's very tight and close and um, we can often get going on a tangent or, or, or engaged in a topic that's to do with the winery or wine style it could be anything to do with the winery where we have our other people because we don't do everything here believe me not even close we have a lot of we have a you know, great winemaking team we've got great people in other sales and marketing there's a lot of people that are part of this Henry of Pelham to make it all work and uh, so I think you know and just as we as we grow as the business grows and evolves it, it's more and more important for us to be able to bring those other ideas in and get the best of those ideas and make sure we don't block them out because we're so engaged and mm -hmm. and we get into a dialogue it can all of a sudden they could be put those ideas get pushed out unintentionally it just can happen because it's natural so the, the, the vines are planted in 84. The winery starts in what year? Well, 88 was the first vintage. vintage the, the winery starts in 88. Yeah, I, I, I nailed a, yeah. an open sign on that pole up there, the telephone pole, July 1st, Canada Day, 1989. is when we actually opened the little store here. Okay. So then we fast forward. At that point, you're, you're selling Henry of Pelham wines. Now you have quite a number of different brands or products out there. Sibling Rivalry, um, House Wine Company, Cuvée Catherine. I mean, there's a third one. I don't yeah. know. Silver, Silver Bay. Bay. Silver Bay. Yeah. What makes you branch out, and are you afraid that you're going to saturate the market with too much wine? Or? That's a great question. Uh, 
You want me to answer this one? Sure. Because he needs something to sell. It's a great question because we, um, we did Henry of Pelham as, as a, as a, has been a traditional Niagara State winery with very traditional terroir-driven wines. And, and uh, for basically, what was it, 20 years. Uh, and, and then we started to see the market shifting in a good way, but it was shifting sort of the mid nine. Uh, when did we release? Uh, 2008. Was 2009. Yeah, so, so in the mid-2000s, there was a shifting in the market, which was awesome because uh, wine consumption of wine was starting to grow at all, in all places, particularly young people getting interested in wine early, much earlier than uh, the baby boomers did. I mean, the baby boomers really drove the whole wine phenomena uh, that we are living in today because they... They started to experiment in their 30s and whatnot with wine, and um, they were traveling more than their parents. They're more educated. There's more money, and eating foods from all over the world. And that was the boomers that kind of drove the whole North American wine boom. And uh, you get in now. You fast forward to their children. Um, they're they've grown up with wine from all over the world. Uh, they've been tasting it. They're interested in wine. Uh, younger and uh, they don't necessarily want to drink what their, their parents were drinking I mean it's very natural uh, and so we started to see this so we, we first looked at um, sibling rivalry is what's a way to tell the Henry of Pelham story uh, in a, a fun way that might appeal to another younger group of people and so that's when sibling rivalry came out and it was a, it was a very big Success, but I, I remember when we first released it in the LCBO, uh, a couple of wine writers literally called me up the day it was released and said, "You're going to ruin the Henry of Pelham brand. I mean, it's that's not serious-looking wine, and uh, the wine itself is serious, but the packaging's fun, the idea's fun, and you know, it was in a screw cap, and and it was not super expensive, uh, and and we had concerns about that, but uh, it actually did the opposite." It, uh, we, we think that people started to get in it discovering sibling rivalry started to discover Henry Pelham and vice versa uh, and I think Dan put it best after we had that success with sibling rivalry we uh, I think Dan said we, we kind of moved from an estate wine company to a wine company and and we realized that you know what uh, Henry of Pelham is the crown jewel. It always will be. It's the terroir-driven wines. Uh, but we're going to experiment with other parts of the market that are exciting to us at all price levels. And we have some... We just uh, went with our sales team yesterday through some very cool brands that are going to be hitting the market next next year. So thanks, everybody, for coming. Thank you, guys. Thanks. thanks. That was awesome. And a big thank you uh, to all three of you for making the time today. Yes, thank you very hey, much. Thank you guys for your interest and your continued interest in uh, Niagara Wines and our wines. Thank you guys for everything you do. Appreciate it. Now, that was a really interesting conversation, and it's really it's nice to see the dynamic of the three brothers and how they really seem to balance each other out with the roles they play in the winery. I, I found it fascinating to watch. I probably could have listened to them more than talk to them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like just, just ask them a question and let them go. But 100%. You know, we do have to rein some of them in sometimes just so that we can get all the questions that we wanted to get in. And even then, I'm sure we probably could have asked, asked some more had we really wanted to. Cause I mean, that's the sort of thing is when we get back and we sit down, we always think of other things. And I'm sure we'll have a chance to sit down with, with one of the specs at some point in the next little while, we might need to do a Baco Noir showdown or something with uh, with Paul or something like that. I mean, yeah, we'll see what goes on. Which brings us to our big announcement. Yes, really big Which news. We should have done at the beginning of the show, but we're going to do it here. Yes, we are. Uh, we're announcing our next Two Guys Talking Live will be taking place at Southbrook, where we sit down with the incomparable bill redemeyer the founder of Southwatch. <laughs> anyone who knows bill knows that he does like to talk a lot 
But we are going to find a way to keep stories. it. Don't get me wrong. Yes. He tells some of the best stories and knows history of, of Ontario wine and the history of Toronto and the history of Niagara. He knows a lot of history, so he's got a lot of stuff packed into that head of his. But I think we're going to have to bring a stopwatch. Yes. So tickets will be on sale. We'll announce through our various social media channels. I'm sure Michael will mention it in his mail out. If you go to my website, andrewinereview.ca, I have a weekly newsletter too that Michael hasn't subscribed to yet. And April 7th. April 7th is when you can sit down and watch Michael Pincus and I sit down with Bill Rettelmeyer from Southbrook to get the original, in his words, story of where things came from. How it got started why he started up in Richmond Hill, how he moved down to Niagara, how he got the coup of having Anne Sperling as, as his winemaker. There's a lot to be told here. There's a crazy story to that. All the names involved with it, too. The Laley family, Derek Barnett. I mean, there's a lot for us to cover. There is, and it's going to be a good one. So, uh, yeah, join us uh, April the 7th. It is a Saturday. Uh, two guys talking live. He's Andre Prue of AndreWineReview.ca. And he's Michael Pincus of MichaelPincusWineReview.com. And as always, good night! Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes.